Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. As we left our last discussion, we had talked about the case for the Constitution in the Federalist Papers, and we explored three principal themes that corresponded to three principal criticisms of the Constitution during the debate over ratification shortly after the Constitution had been proposed in 1787. The first objection to the proposed Constitution was that the Constitution is not Republican, that it will in practice be monarchical or perhaps aristocratic, that its institutions are far removed from the people, they don't have a direct dependence on the people, they're not responsive to the people's will, and that the government over so vast a territory and so large a population will necessarily be controlled by factional interests. The second criticism was that the Constitution will consolidate power in the national government and it'll obliterate the independence and sovereignty of the individual states by subsuming everything into one national government. And then the third criticism was that the national government will go beyond the powers granted to it in the Constitution and it'll become tyrannical. And so as it concentrates power, as it's governed by factional interests, as its dependence on the people lessens, and as it grows its power, then we have the specter of this tyrannical national government. For direct responses to these objections and these criticisms, we then looked to Federalist 10, 39, and 51. In Federalist 10, Publius then argued that the Constitution is Republican or representative. And then he went on to argue that, counterintuitively, the size and scope of the Republic will help guard against any one faction from controlling the government. In Federalist 39, Publius argues that the Constitution is both national and federal, that it won't obliterate the states or consolidate all power at the national level, that there'll be a significant federal aspect to this new government created by this new Constitution. The Constitution retains some aspects of a federal system, recognizes the independence and sovereignty of the states, but it also does create some national political institutions that will exercise powers that don't depend for their existence on the states. It will operate directly on the people. And so it will be partly national and partly federal. In Federalist 51, Publius then responds to the charge that the national government will assume powers that were never granted and will go beyond the authority given to it in the Constitution that the powers of the national government are going to grow. And the argument in Federalist 51 is that by separating government powers into different institutions, vesting them in those institutions, and by giving office holders the tools they need to guard their own institution against encroachment by others, the Constitution will maintain the separation of powers in practice. It'll do this by connecting individual self-interest and ambition to a specific office and to a specific institution. It will channel self-interest and ambition. It will supply the defect of better motives. Notice that Publius's argument about maintaining limited government and preventing the concentration of power was not to turn immediately to the Supreme Court as the institution that would be tasked with maintaining the integrity of the Constitution or preventing the abuse of power by other institutions. The answer isn't, well, let's turn to the courts and let them tell us what the Constitution means. In the framework that you find in the Federalist Papers, the court is just one institution in this larger system in which powers are separated and ambition in one institution is supposed to check ambition in another institution. 
And judges, of course, are as ambitious and self-interested as anyone else, and the same assumptions about human nature would apply equally to them. But one of the Constitution's most insightful critics locked onto the particular danger that he thought would be posed by the Supreme Court, writing under the pseudonym of Brutus, alluding to Marcus Julius Brutus, one of the men who conspired to assassinate Julius Caesar. The author published an essay in a New York newspaper in 1788 sounding the alarm about what he called, quote, the nature and extent of the judicial power of the United States proposed to be granted by this Constitution. We generally assume that Brutus was Hamilton's fellow New York delegate to the convention, Robert Yates, who left early because of his objections to the Constitution, but we don't know that for certain, and some scholars are convinced that it was actually Malachton Smith, another New Yorker who had served in the Continental Congress and was the likely author of at least some of the essays that opposed ratification. Whoever the author was, Brutus's argument about the federal judicial power is straightforward and it's helpful for us to consider before we turn to Publius's response in Federalist 78 that the Supreme Court is going to be the least dangerous branch of government and that there really is not much for us to be worried about from that quarter. As Brutus surveyed the landscape in 1788, this is what he saw. The Constitution that was being proposed for ratification would create a complete national government that would have the ability to make and enforce its own laws. Its enumerated powers did not depend on any other governments or authorities. It didn't work through the states themselves. Not only that, but the Constitution declared in Article 6 that this Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land and judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. So the Constitution would be supreme over state law, federal law would be supreme over state law, federal treaties would be supreme over state law. And it would be the federal courts that got to decide what the Constitution or the federal law meant when there was a conflict with state laws or state constitutions. Not only that, but the judges on those courts would be far removed from the people. They'll be independent of the legislature, they'll have life tenure, and there'll be no appeal beyond the Supreme Court, no court to appeal to, and you certainly couldn't go to your, say, state Supreme Court. And so Brutus concludes that the real effect of this system of government will therefore be brought home to the feelings of the people through the medium of the judicial power. Note that Brutus agrees with one of the key assumptions made by the Federalist Papers, that human beings are ambitious and seek to concentrate power in their hands, and that they will see their self-interest bound up with their own institution. This is one of the core assumptions of Federalist 51 and the argument that the separation of powers would be the means of limiting government in practice. But Brutus looked at this from a slightly different angle. Instead of looking at conflict among the branches of the federal government, where institutions check each other at the national level, he looked at the conflict between the federal government and the states. And from that perspective, he thought the clear incentive for the national government was to grow its own powers at the expense of state powers, and that this would provide a self-interested reason for collusion among federal officeholders to expand federal power over the states. Rather than checking each other, they'll work together to increase the powers of the national government over the states. And he wasn't subtle in his conclusions. As he says, the judicial power will operate to effect in the most certain but yet silent and imperceptible manner. What is evidently the tendency of the Constitution, I mean an entire subversion of the legislative, executive, and judicial powers of the individual states. This would happen by appealing to the ambiguities in the text of the Constitution itself, according to Brutus. Congress had certain enumerated powers, but one of those was to do whatever was necessary and proper to carry out its other powers. 
Courts would judge in law and equity, something Brutus thought would authorize them to interpret the Constitution according to the spirit rather than the letter of the law. And in interpreting the Constitution, they won't be bound by its text. They'll build a body of precedents far removed from the text itself that will allow them to justify whatever they want. As he concludes, this power in the judicial will enable them, the judges, to mold the government into almost any shape they please. Now, how to respond to this and other accusations that the Supreme Court would be dangerous to the people's liberties and to the powers and institutions of the states? In Federalist 78, Publius takes up this challenge. He notes first that federal judges under the Constitution will be appointed for life. Presidents nominate, and the Senate confirms federal judges who will then hold office during good behavior, ensuring their political independence, something that Publius thinks is necessary for the impartial administration of the laws, and that we actually find in a lot of the state constitutions as well. Publius goes on to say that in a government in which legislative, executive, and judicial powers are separated into different institutions, the judiciary will be the least to be feared, because they're the least dangerous to, quote, the political rights of the Constitution or the ordering of government and society. Why is that? Why would they be the least dangerous? Well, because the executive branch controls the honors and the sword of the community. Executives dispense honors and recognition and enforce the law through violent means if necessary. The legislature controls how money is to be spent and for what purposes and writes laws regulating all manner of activities. And what are the judges? According to Publius, the judiciary, on the contrary, has no influence over either the sword or the purse, no direction either of the strength or of the wealth of the society, and can take no active resolution whatever. It has neither force nor will but merely judgment and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm even for the efficacy of its judgments. And this leads to the conclusion that the judiciary is, beyond comparison, the weakest of the three departments of power. Elsewhere in the Federalist Papers, Publius then argues that national courts will deal only with questions of national importance that are part of a national jurisdiction, that it would make little sense to have state judges and state courts responsible for adjudicating the boundaries between the states and the nation, or to be the final arbiters of what the Constitution and federal laws mean. If the objection to the supremacy of federal law to state law proves anything, according to Publius, it proves too much. It proves that we shouldn't have a national government at all. In hindsight, looking back almost two and a half centuries later, there's a lot of things that we might say about these debates. And in some sense, perhaps Brutus and Publius are both right. As Brutus predicted, the powers of the national government have grown over time, while the powers of the states relative to the national government have declined. Judges have interpreted the Constitution according to its reasoning spirit and not just the letter of the law or the letter of the Constitution. They've gotten a lot of mileage out of the Necessary and Proper Clause, not to mention the Commerce Clause and the Spending Clause, all things we'll discuss later in the semester. But Publius was also arguably right that the Supreme Court is the least dangerous branch of the federal government because it has neither force nor will, but merely judgment. A political scientist at the University of Chicago named Gerald Rosenberg has a famous book called The Hollow Hope, where he takes the thesis from Federalist 78 that the court is institutionally weak and the weakest and the least dangerous of the national government. And he applies this thesis to an analysis of big political controversies in the 20th century, such as school desegregation. He shows that the percentage of black school children attending integrated public schools after the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education remained virtually unchanged over the next decade. The court had rendered its judgment in Brown versus Board of Education that separate but equal in the realm of public education is inherently unequal, that it's a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. 
But it took concerted action by the executive and legislative branches. Recall President Eisenhower sent in the 101st Airborne to forcibly desegregate Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. And then, of course, the Civil Rights Act in 1964 attached federal spending to local efforts at integration. In other words, consistent with what Federalist 78 says, the court's power lay in its persuasiveness and its judgment and its appearance to others as authoritative and legitimate. It didn't control the purse or the sword. It couldn't spend money. It couldn't enforce the law. That belonged to Congress and the president. And each institution used those powers to advance the constitutional understanding of Brown versus Board of Education. And perhaps speaking to the fears that Brutus had when there was a conflict between state law and federal law, federal law won. That doesn't mean that the court is unimportant. Far from it. But it operates in a political context, and the institutional strength of the court lies in its ability to shape the constitutional understandings of legislators and executives in the other branches. Without political support for its decisions, the court's power is greatly limited, and we see moments like that in American politics. The most prominent example is probably when the Supreme Court damaged its institutional credibility with the decision in Dred Scott v. Sanford in 1857. When he was president, Abraham Lincoln ignored this Supreme Court decision. He ignored several others as he executed his constitutionally required oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And so this leads us to another question, which we'll pick up in the next episode. What does it mean exactly to swear fidelity or allegiance to the Constitution? What does that oath demand? And who gets to say what the Constitution means?